And our epistle reading comes to us today from the epistle to Titus, and we'll be in chapter 1. You can find this on page 998 of your pew Bible if you have one handy. But we'll pick up in verse 5, and we'll see why it is that Paul left Titus in Crete. Again, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Moving into chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And our catechism reading comes to us from the Belgic Confession. We've been going through the Belgic Confession for a few months now, um, and we're doing a little more up-tempo, sometimes doing more than one article at a time. And today we're going to look at two short articles that are there for you in your bulletin, Article 30 and 31. Article 30, we believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in His Word. There should be ministers or pastors to preach the Word of God and administer the sacraments. There should also be elders and deacons, along with the pastors, to make up the council of the church. By this means, true religion is preserved, true doctrine is able to take its course, and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check, so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. By this means, everything will be done well and in good order in the church. When such men are elected who are faithful and are chosen according to the rule that Paul gave to Timothy. Article 32. We believe that ministers of the word of God, elders and deacons, ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church, with prayer in the name of the Lord and in good order, as the word of God teaches. So everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call so that he may be assured of his calling and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. As for ministers of the word, they all have the same power and authority no matter where they may be, since they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. 
Moreover, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought, as much as possible, to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work they do, and be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, when a church plant is, is finished. When do we know that it's, it's all done? And one of the things that came to mind is that uh, in Chicago, there is this liqueur, it's kind of a regional thing, called Jepson's Malort, and it tastes awful. If you've ever heard of it, um, it's because it tastes awful, and your friends try to pour you a, a little bit of it for you to taste as kind of a prank. Um, but apparently people in Chicago just love it. It's, it's regional. Uh, it comes from Scandinavia originally, and there are good versions of it in Scandinavia. But it's a harsh and bitter flavor, I know from experience. And of course, as with everything, there's a YouTube video of people trying this for the first time. And so as I was thinking about this, it came to mind because there's this moment where one of the people takes a shot of this liqueur and he goes, how did he know when it was done? If it's this bad, when did he say, this is enough? We're going to stop here and be done. This is my product. How do we know when something is done? When there's a lot of confusion, how did he know that Malort was the product he wanted to put out and put his name on? And when is a church plan a church? When is it done? When should a church organize? How do we know? Oftentimes, we probably find ourselves in those moments. How do I know when this is done? How do I know when we've reached the right point? What makes a church a church? Last week, we talked about the marks of the church, the things that the church does. Preaching, the administration of the sacraments, membership and discipline. And I mentioned then about how some of these things have practical implications. Well, one of the practical implications is that you need people to do those things. You need people to call together worship, to preach the word, to administer the sacraments. I'm not trying to imply that churches are bad or bitter or that it's so bad we'll never know when it's done. But we should ask ourselves, we should reflect on what makes a church a church? What does it need? In our tradition, churches plant churches. And so there is one entity, when I am sent to Birmingham, will still just be part of Christ Reformed Church. But eventually, that church will organize and become its own entity. And there are different answers that people come up with to when a church is a church. Within the last few months, I listened to a podcast of somebody who was uh, planting a Reformed Baptist church in the South, broadly, and uh, because of their ecclesiology, he talked about how as soon as they had ordained a deacon, his overseeing church said, you are organized. They ordained a deacon, he was the pastor, and that was it. They incorporated. They were still financially dependent on the overseeing church, but they were their own entity, their own self-governing church. Or on the other extreme, you have a lot of churches. I get these ads all the time, I guess because I'm a pastor, where I'm scrolling through social media and it tells me there's yet another new church in D.C. Sign up to find out. And I know something about these churches. These churches often have large budgets, large oversights, and they bring in a large staff to put on an event, a launch event, 
It's a lot more like a concert than it is doing the marks of the church. There's confusion. When, when do those churches become churches? What is needed to get one started? Is it a church plant if there's just one person stubborn enough to try? When do we say that a church is organized? Well, before we move to answering that question by looking at some points from Titus and from our confession, I also just want to make one side note. We have teaching on church governance in our confession. Not all churches do this. You don't go to statement of faiths on websites and find, how are you governed, usually? They don't talk about how they are biblically governed, how this is important and confessional. And all throughout the Belgic Confession, as we've been going through it, we've been hearing, we believe, we believe and confess again and again with every article. This is what unites us in our confession, and we believe and confess a particular form of government. If you have your bulletin handy on the back, you'll see that it says church council. It's taken directly from our uh, reading this morning in our confession. The elders, the ministers, the deacons, they make up the church council. It's a term we use. And then we talk about the consistory in our church order, which is the pastors and elders. These offices are confessional for us. We take time to stop and pause and think about why these things are important. Often these things are opaque. They're not transparent. Who's in charge of this church? And a lot of churches in the world is not very clear. But here we want to pause and teach about who has authority and what kind of authority they have. We don't push church government to the side because it's important for all of us to understand, especially if we are going to be good church members. It's not optional, it's not flexible, it's not disposable. There are clear directives from Scripture about what we are to do. Um, an example of how this is sometimes flexible. Uh, I know of a church that basically rebranded their elder board. So this is not a reformed church, but they had deacons and pastors. And then they had one other group, and they called it the administrative ministry team. And it basically was an elder board. It operated as an elder board. But because they thought, and I think they really thought that they had invented this idea, they had no biblical qualifications for the administrative ministry team. It was just this team of people who were gifted at making decisions. As such, they never talked about themselves as elder. They never talked about what qualifications biblically needed to be met. It was just who's good at handling hard situations. As such, there were plenty of ladies of the church on the administrative ministry team. They didn't look to scripture to derive that. They just said, oh, we have this great idea. We'll make this new team. Well, in contrast to that, let's start this morning by looking at how the Bible describes a well-ordered church. And I chose our epistle reading this morning purposefully because it's the perfect scenario. Paul and Titus have converted some Cretans. They've come to Crete, and as we heard Paul say, quoting one of their poets, Cretans are Cretans, right? They're, they're famous for a reason. But there have been some who have converted. But the church is not fully ordered. It's not fully set up. And so we start with Paul saying, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. He's been given a task. He's been given a job. 
And what's the first thing? To appoint elders, overseers. Right? The work wasn't done. Paul had to go, but Titus had to stay and finish the job. And so Paul is publicly, right? This letter to Titus was Titus's job description from Paul that he could share. Look, Paul told me to do this thing. What is he to do? He's to set things in order by appointing elders, especially. What they needed in this church was Titus, who was teaching, right? He was to teach sound doctrine and teach it to the elders and ordain and set up elders. That was Titus's calling. That's what the church needed to be set into order. And one of the major things we should uh, pick up from here is that whereas a more uh, established church, as Paul writes to Timothy, which our, um, our confession alludes to, there's also qualifications for deacons. But Crete's not even to that point yet. They don't even have elders. And so the first thing, the most important thing, is to set up these overseers, these elders. Another way to think about this kind of practically and in our modern day is that churches go through seasons without pastors. In extraordinary instances, churches can go through seasons without deacons, where the elders handle the mercy ministry of the church. But a church can't go without elders. It can't go without that board of people. It can't go without those men committed to overseeing the membership of the church. The men who meet these qualifications. In our church order, it's the elders who oversee the worship, who call the services, who oversee the members. Traditionally, though, I go on a number of home visits because our consistory is smaller. It's the elders who go and visit the members. They're the ones who call us to meet together. They're the ones who know our lives. They're the ones who are to shepherd us. They care for our souls. And so in our tradition, reflecting Paul's wisdom here, a church is not set up without elders. There are times when maybe without a minister and they need to call someone. There are times where they may be without deacons and they have to oversee the mercy ministry. There is no time where they could be without elders. And just quickly, perhaps, if you have Presbyterian ears, which some people do, no, no problem there, you've heard that I'm talking about pastors and elders as different things. And our confession talks about them as different things. It sets up a difference. And in our church order, it's mostly a difference of emphasis. The elders are to oversee. The minister is the one who administers the sacrament, who preaches the word. But they have the same authority. That Baptist church I described earlier has no lay elders, no ruling elders. It is run entirely by pastors. They still uh, only have pastors as elders. There's two now, not just one. And they have a multitude of deacons. And we teach not just based on pragmatism, but based on our understanding of Scripture that pastors and elders are distinct. And there's wisdom here. Paul left Titus here to preach and teach and set things into order. Tradition holds that Titus became the bishop, the overseer, the main pastor in Crete. Um, and if you have time, it's worth uh, finding, and I'll find you the reference, but Herman Bovink in his Reform Dogmatics makes the point that to get to episcopacy, to get to those bishops, um, 
What you need first is a distinction between ministers and elders, even just a slight one. And the practical benefit of this distinction has been recognized by many Presbyterians as well who talk about teaching elders and ruling elders. It's the same distinction, but slightly softer. But Paul's associates are called and instructed to teach and preach. We can think about Paul's instructions to Timothy. Preach the word in season, out of season. And in that same passage, Paul reminds Timothy how he was called. Michael Horton is fond of pointing this out. He used to do it in class all the time. That Paul reminds Timothy, not you received an apostolic calling like me, but the elders laid hands on you and set you aside for this work. It's not an apostolic call. Timothy is not succeeding Paul. He's taking up this call and this place from the elders to teach and to preach. And moving on to my second point is that we have been given these things. This is the biblical order, but they are a gift, right? When we talk about being given these things, these officers are a gift. And I'm not trying to stand here and uh, toot my own horn, but this is the way that Paul describes officers. He describes especially teachers and shepherds, elders, as gifts, especially in Ephesians. You can hear this. This is from an older translation that I've modernized a little bit, um, but I like the way that it renders one of these clauses. And so it says that Christ gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, some evangelists, and some shepherds, pastors, and teachers. For the for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and attain to a full-grown man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men in craftiness, after the wiles of error, but they, speaking the truth in love, help grow us up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. And Paul continues on. It's one of his long sentences. But one of the things he's saying here is that good officers, officers who do their work well, are gifts. Evangelists, pastors, shepherds, overseers, right? Teachers. We often hear that word pastor and we don't think about the image that it implies. A pastor is a shepherd. It's an overseer of a flock. It's that picture of our Lord's parables going out to care for the sheep. And good officers who do what they're called to do are gifts to God's people. These gifts are poured out by God himself, by Christ himself. Now, this is not to say that no person has ever abused the ministry. We have ample evidence to the contrary. Even in the New Testament, Paul and other apostles run into false teachers trying to abuse even this. Paul talks about it there in Titus. We heard. They're out there. They're doing this for gain. But those who point us to Christ are a gift. They help us grow up into him, help us to conform to his image. They aid us in our Christian life. So the church has given missionaries, missionary pastors, shepherds, teachers. Why? To grow us up into Christ's likeness, to help conform us to his image. 
Good ministers, elders, and deacons are gifts that we should appreciate because they help keep order, and not just some mundane order, as in when the service is scheduled and making sure the bills are paid, though those are important things. They help keep order in our lives. They help us keep order when things are going off the rails. I was recently speaking to a friend who's been in Reformed churches for decades. But in recent years, he's been in URC churches in particular, ones a lot like ours. And what struck me was his depth of appreciation for the pastoral care he's received. He's gone through some difficult times lately. And he said, you know, I always know that I can call my pastor, I can call my elder, and I can talk to them about whatever's going on, no matter how difficult and hard it is. I know them, I know they love me, I know they're going to point me to Christ. In this church, your pastors and your elders pray for you. We try to check in on you, not just yearly during home visits, but monthly, weekly, as best we can. We want to be a part of your lives. We want you to come to the church when you're having difficult seasons. Come to deacons, come to elders, come to pastors. We don't want you to go through the Christian life alone, especially when it's our calling, our jobs, to minister to you Christ's grace and his mercy. And that's why our confession says that by this means, by the means of officers, true religion is preserved. True doctrine is able to take its course. Evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check, and the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. It's not just mundane order, but it's our own spiritual order that they keep. They assist us, they help us. And as a member of this church, in the Reformed world, pastors are not members of a body, we're members of this body. We've been on the receiving end of that, I can say, personally. And so, why does church government matter? Well, it's ministering Jesus' gospel in Jesus' way. His last act in the Gospel of Matthew is to give the Great Commission. Go, disciple, preach, baptize, administer the sacraments. I talked about last week how these things imply the marks of the church. Preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, disciple, have members of the church, and discipline. Jesus not only came to redeem us, but he set up a certain order. Sometimes in the Bible it's described like a schoolhouse. Sometimes it's described as the worshiping covenant community. But whatever it's described as, we cannot go through the Christian life alone. He's called us to love one another. We can't do that alone. He's called us to meet together. We cannot do that alone. He has called us to submit to elders who care for us and who minister his word to us. We cannot do that by ourselves. To ignore these clear teachings of God's word on the church is not to follow Christ, not to love him not the Christ of the Bible, at least. We cannot do the Christian life just as well on our own. It's not a life alone, it's a life together. And we undervalue the church in our modern world and in our modern thinking. We don't often see it, even though it's all throughout scripture. It's woven throughout in ways we often miss. It's the church who sins Missionaries and preachers, as we hear about in Romans 10. It's the church that has these elders and deacon, deacons and are called to appoint them. 
It is the church that preserves and proclaims God's word. It is the church that preserved manuscripts. It's the church that made translations that we have in our pew. That's not to say that all translations are official acts of churches, but it's Christians who are in their calling, often ministers and teachers in the church, who translate these, these documents. It's in the church that we're able to hear about the Christ who cares for us and take on his light burden and his easy yoke. And again, one of the great tragedies of our age that I want us to reflect on as well is that churches are places that have lost trust in many cases. Many have abused the word and authority of Christ. One of our temptations, though, is to ignore the fact that this has always been the case. I was reminded recently that if we believe that Paul set these churches up into the biblical order as Christ commanded, then we also have to believe that these churches that had all these problems in the New Testament had good church government. They had the right pieces, but things were still going to go off the rails because there was still sin. The correct polity doesn't keep sin from happening. There are still sinners in the church. There are still sinners in ministry. It doesn't prevent sin and error, but a good policy, good polity executed well helps guide us in difficult situations, helps protect the peace and purity of the church, helps care for members. God has set up his church to care for Christians, to care for those afflicted. And we must follow through with our convictions, our convictions about authority, our convictions about order in those difficult situations. One last thing. We'll, we'll close with one more thing. We often misunderstand ministerial authority. We often think of authority as this unbounded thing. And when I say ministerial authority, you probably hear the authority of ministers, which is what I'm talking about. But it's also ministerial authority in contrast to magisterial authority, which is to say that authority in the church is not absolute. It is by nature the authority of a servant, a minister. One example, one uh, illustration is that ministers, elders, deacons, we have limited powers. It's like a power of attorney over one small area. We're not given a blank check of authority. We are not the king. We are servants. We cannot lose sight of church leadership as servant leadership, even as members. Pastors, elders, deacons, we do not serve ourselves. We are to serve God and his word. We're to serve his people. And we can't transgress the boundaries of God's word. We can't ask for things outside of it. We're bound. Our authority is bound by the word. It's summarized in our church by our confession, by our church order. That's what bounds our authority. We can't ask you to do things outside of that. We have scripture. We have our confessions. We have our church order. That's what we agree to as members. We don't tell you exactly who to marry. We don't tell you where to live. Christ hasn't given us authority to pick the person for you. Christ hasn't given us authority to pick your house for you. Instead, we're to minister God's gospel, God's law, as summarized in our forms. Ministers are servants. 
Elders are servants. Deacons are servants. Servants of Christ to help keep us in check. Yes, they have an authority, but it's a limited authority. And the importance of rightly understanding this, right, is because Christ is king. That's where we started in Article 29. Christ is king. We heard it here. He's the only universal bishop of the church. He's the only one who's above. There's nobody between a minister and Christ. There's nobody between you and Christ. Christ is your king. We're just his servants, help, helping execute his will. And so I return. When do we know that a church is done? When do we know when a church government is ready? Well, the church is done when it has officers, but especially elders, as we saw in Titus. Especially elders. When a church is stable, when it's able to self-govern, when a legitimate election of a church can take place, when the church can and does faithfully administer the marks, especially the preaching of the gospel with the sacraments and membership as well, that's when it's done. That's when it's ready to be its own church. When elders can call a minister, deacons can serve the people, and all of that can happen without the need for other elders to oversee. And this spiritual order ensures we hear the gospel message week after week. It ensures that our souls are cared for. It should ensure justice and forgiveness in the church because there's sin. We need to hear that gospel week by week. We need to be called together week by week. And we need to hear it personally by our shepherds and elders who know us, who comfort us with Christ, who love us, who serve you throughout peaks and valleys in your life. If you'll join me in prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your church. We thank you for the gift of your ministers. But we thank you most of all for the gift of your Son, Christ Jesus, the Righteous One. We ask that through your word, through your officers, and through your church, we would be pointed to Christ, our only King, our only Savior, our only High Priest. We ask that you would draw our eyes to him, that we would submit to him in his word, as he has called us to do. And we ask that we would be gracious with one another as we struggle through the failings of sin of this life. Lord, we pray that we would be a faithful church, that we would love one another, that we would serve one another. We pray that you would protect our church council, keep them from abuse of authority, and that they would help point us to you. We ask that you would give us your spirit, an increase of your spirit, that we would be thankful for what you have done to us, what you have done for us, and that we would gladly be a part of your church, coming to be a part of a community that is grateful for your word and your gospel and our salvation. We pray all this in the name of Christ and by that spirit. Amen.